I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and this is Writers on Writing. So glad you're with us today. Writers on Writing focuses on the art, craft, and business of writing. Today my guest is novelist Antoine Wilson. Antoine is the author of the novels The Interloper, Panorama City, and his new novel Mouth to Mouth, recently named one of Barack Obama's favorite books of 2022. His writing has appeared in the Paris Review, Quarterly West, and Best New American Voices, among other publications. He's a contributing editor at a public space. He's taught writing at the University of Iowa, the University of California, San Diego, the University of California, Los Angeles Extension Writers Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Otis School of Art and Design. Born in Montreal and raised in California and Saudi Arabia, he now lives with his family in Los Angeles. About Mouth to Mouth, Kirk has said, a deliciously nasty morality play in the guise of a thriller. Today we talked about creating character, plotting, backstory, and so much more. Before we bring on Antoine, a suggestion. If you like what you hear today and you find that it helps you with your own writing, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Every little bit helps Marie and me to continue producing the show. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Now for the show. Antoine, I'm so glad you could be here today. And I so have so many questions about mouth to mouth. Um, first, let's begin with you talking about how the story came about, the the origin, the moment of origin. Sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you for thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited too. Um yeah, this this I mean, there are obviously many different origins for uh, a novel because it's this you know massive, complex sort of thing that um, attracts a lot of different things to it, a lot of different aspects of life. My my analogy is like if your life is a lemon, you know, you take a little zest off the lemon to try to get some of that personal ingredient in the novel, and eventually you're trying to make a new lemon out of lemon zest, but. <laughs> this this novel did have a, a, a sort of inciting incident, um, which is uh, back in, uh, I guess it was 97, 1997. I was visiting Seattle with a couple of friends and we were down there um, by the water. They were having Seafair, which is their kind of fleet week where they have some Navy ships and stuff uh, there. And we were looking around and there's a... Uh, I basically, I, I prevented somebody from uh, inadvertently walking in front of a freight train. It was a guy who's walking by the waterfront and, and air drumming, not paying attention to anything around him, headphones on, and he was just about to walk in front of a train and I, and I got his attention and I stopped him. And then the train, you know, went by and he looked at me and was just, you know, he realized what had happened and he's like, oh my God, you saved my life. I'm going to buy you a big steak dinner and um, which, yeah. And then, and then the train kept going. And um, once the train had gone past, he just kept air drumming and, and walked away. And so my friends um, made fun of me for a long time 
for not never getting my my steak dinner. <laughs> but right, but so years later, um, post uh, Panorama City, I was noodling around with some different ideas, and I I've always been interested in this kind of relationship between. Uh, a rescuer and someone who's rescued in in some form or another and this steak dinner guy came to mind and i thought yeah i switched it in those early drafts to a drowning um and and i thought what if you know what if the guy who's saved offers up a steak dinner and then and then the other guy the rescuer when they're done with their actual steak dinner says that was great let's do it again next week you know and he, and he can't get away from him in this sort of cable guy scenario um it wasn't very good it didn't work you know but it was the the germ of the germ that eventually led to uh, a different kind of drowning and a different kind of rescue and a different kind of reward which um takes place in in mouth to mouth hmm. so i'm curious about categories and if you have when you're writing are you thinking where this goes on the shelf did you think this is a literary novel and that's where it goes? Or did you think this is gonna be a sort of crime novel and that's where it goes? Because I found it really interesting that that Kirk has said a delicious, um, deliciously nasty morality play in the guise of a thriller. Right. Would you call it that? No, um, <laughs> I like the morality play part. And I mean, the interesting thing is for me, yeah, uh, where do I picture it on the shelf is literary fiction, right? I guess it's sort of a default for me. I, I just picture it on on a show. I don't think too much about um, genre. So then that's kind of a catch all for a non genre book. Uh, and but then what ended up happening was when people read this, they talked about it in terms of a thriller. They talked about it in terms of that sort of suspense that occurs in terms of you know why Jeff is telling the narrator the story and and then what's going on even within the story and the, and then the, the short chapters all kinds of different um, aspects of the book cause people to refer to it as a thriller in some shape you know or form it was never intended as a thriller so i it, it's interesting to have it labeled like that because i think people who read a lot of thrillers uh, could come to this book and be like you know, expecting certain uh, hallmarks of that genre and be disappointed. Whereas I think people who come to it as, uh, you know, just a sort of general literary fiction novel, mm -hmm. come, they might come out of it saying that was a thriller. So right. it was not an, it was not my intention to write um, a thriller per se. Hmm. Is literary suspense um, a genre these days or no? Is that not, not something that you would ever call that? this book um i i have no idea uh, <laughs> but i also i i think yeah i wouldn't call it that because i mean to me the main point of the the main sort of reason of existence of the book is not uh, to generate suspense even if that's what it does do you know what i mean yeah. like um and so it, essentially you know i'm i'm the one person in the world who can never actually read this book um, like a reader can, because I know it intimately in a completely different way as the the maker of it. So it, it's been an interesting ride for me in terms of getting hearing what people's experiences are, um, 
uh, reading the book in in ways that were not necessarily intended, but obviously, you know, ended up in the in the construction of it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it is it is interesting. The narrator is an author on his way to Berlin. I was I was curious about Berlin and why Berlin, but mm-hmm. that's not really my question yet. And then, <laughs> but it's a it's a sort of Nick Calloway narrator in that this you know he's telling the story, but it's not his story, right? Talk about that. Talk about coming to that form and why you wanted to do that. Well, initially, this book, despite its short length, um, took a long time to write. Uh, And it was um, written alongside another novel, which remains in a drawer and doesn't quite work. Um, And I was going back and forth, abandoning one for the other. And and really abandoning them, like this, saying to my my wife, this doesn't work. Like I'm, there's no way I'm doing this. I can't do this. I'm putting it away for good, you know. And then going to the other one, and then months later, doing the same back to this one. And um, along the way, one of the things that wasn't working for me was that the the, the sort of biggest draft that I that I got that I, you know, I didn't I wouldn't say finished because I I never got to the end of the book was uh, one in which uh, was written in which Jeff was the first person narrator of the of the book. Mm. So Jeff was speaking to the reader. Um, I was just looking at it the uh, the other day and I realized that draft is, uh, I think it's 76,000 words. So it's <laughs> about one half longer than this novel <laughs> turned out to be. Um, but part of the issue that I was having with it was, um, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't feel like I. I wanted Jeff's voice right up against the reader's, um, you know, consciousness. Uh, my previous novel is is, you know, ostensibly a transcript of of a tape recording, so it's very voice forward. And this book, I I wanted to step back and be a little bit cooler um, in examining uh, the story that this guy was telling, and maybe I felt like he was too too convincing when he was directly Mm -hmm. speaking to the reader. In any case, I I was stumped. And it was while I was working on the other book that I uh, uh, reread Austerlitz by W.G. Sebald, which is one of my favorite novels. And I had, but I hadn't read it for, since it had come out. And he, this sort of effaced first person, anonymous, you know, non-named narrator, um, through which this uh, the story of uh, Austerlitz, uh, Jacques Austerlitz is told. And I thought, hmm, what if I tried that? So my book has nothing to do with Sebald or his style, but or or his interests even, but that sort of idea of using the the intermediary narrator came from um, rereading that book. And once I started writing in I became, I don't know. I just became a lot more interested in the book, which I think if I'm not interested in the book, I, I can't expect a reader to be. So mm. I felt like I was on the right path. Yeah. And, and, and the way you've done it, uh, I think just automatically inserts some restraint. So we're not so totally in Jeff's shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff isn't able to cast uh, a spell directly on us in the way that some 
first person narrators can, you know, the, the, the cast a spell and then pull the rug out from under you. Um, so the narrator serves as sort of an intermediary. And then I think also it puts the sort of telling, the act of telling the story um, at the center. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, so why Berlin? Why is the author on his way to Berlin? Or the narrator? Yeah, the narrator yeah. is the author on his way to Berlin. Yeah. The narrator's on his way to Berlin. Well, I, I wanted them both to be headed to Europe. And um, I was excited by the... See, there, there, there are deep reasons and shallow reasons why things make their way into novels. <laughs> and I was just excited about that, the flight delay being caused by the volcano um, so that uh, someone in the book could say the name of the volcano with perfect facility, which I, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's possible. I can't do it. Um, anyway, so, you know, that got me sort of thinking about Europe and Berlin was, um, uh, is where my German publisher was based for my previous novel. And, um, I was called in some German publication. I can't remember, uh, a cult author. And I just thought that was super funny. Uh, I never made my way to Germany to try to capitalize on my status as a cult author there, but, uh, (laughs) but I lent it to my narrator. I don't think we, did we ever get the narrator's name? No, he, he has no yeah. name. That's uh, interesting. Had he ever had a name? Was there ever a name in there? Uh, yeah, I played with a couple of names. There was the, the sort of wink, wink, um, you know, Etienne Watkins kind of name where it's a French first name and an Anglo last name. Um, sort of a, a hint at Antoine Wilson. Then there was uh, a line about um, uh, Jeff, you know, when Jeff recognizes the narrator that he said that he said it, the Germanic version of the name and then the French proper French version, you know, like, and then I thought all that stuff is like too winky um, to try to like imply that the narrator's me. Um, and then I didn't, I don't know, I just didn't feel like giving him a completely different name it it's to to have an anonymous narrator um like that it or a nameless narrator i should say is yeah maybe uh, some people really don't like it i like it i think it's fun and i think it invites a little bit of confusion with uh is this the author um actually talking yeah you know, but it's kind of creative writing 101. They'll tell you not to do it. So, but right. I, I like it. So I just, I decided to go for it, but I, I can fall asleep on airplanes and the narrator cannot. So there's the point of difference. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Names are important. And, and I think I might've said uh, Gatsby's uh, narrator was Nick Calloway, not Nick Carraway. So yeah. I wanted to correct that. Um because names are so important, like Jeff Cook. Why Jeff Cook? Why Francis Arsenault? Mm-hmm. How did they get their names? Um, Francis Arsenault's first name comes from a previous draft where I think he was called Francis Weedman. And I think, uh, if I remember correctly, I mean, I've, I've sort of lived with these characters for a long time, so it's hard to remember what the origins were. Um, I, th- I think there's a, he might've been named after a character from John Cheever. <laughs> and then uh, the Ars- Arsenault is a family name from my family. And one I've always 
wanted to use. And then I really enjoyed um, uh, the fact that, you know, Francis has put this name on, um, that this is a, uh, a construction that he's, he's trying to sound kind of fancy uh, by changing his name to Francis Arsenault. Um, Jeff Cook has much more superficial, inside jokey, really dumb origins that I won't go into. Um, but suffice it to say, I, I wanted uh, I wanted someone with a very like a fairly plain name. Um, uh, someone pointed out to me that there's a oh, I think it was Michael Silverblatt said there's Allison Baker and Jeff Cook in the novel, which I, I hadn't noticed. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. The names I, I, you know, are usually kind of by feel like what feels right. And uh, Jeff Cook kind of has like a Joe Blow vibe to me, you know, John Smith. Yeah, John Smith. But he's also cooking up a story, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does work. But you'd never want to, you never want to like overdo that. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. 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 So... The setting, the setting is basically the airport, although then um, Jeff takes us other places. Um, mm -hmm. talk, talk about that. Talk about, you know, coming up with the setting and, and what you wanted to do with that and moving in and out of that. Yeah, um, I, I love the idea of a, of a short novel that consists of two people sitting in a room talking, you know. Um, I'm not sure what draws me to that, but like it, it especially delighted me that the, you know, the first words of this book are, you know, I sat at the <laughs> gate, you know, it's like the, uh, the opposite of action. Um, <laughs> right. And, but anyway, what, what ended up happening was that sort of airport lounge. Um, I wanted some place that was kind of transitory, uh, a place where people, you know, will uh, tell somebody else a story, um, sometimes an intimate kind of story. And then, you know, expect to never see them again. Uh, and there's something about that being in transit that opens people up to that to that kind of thing. It's kind of, you know, a, a secular confessional booth in in some ways, mm -hmm. or confession booth. And then in terms of the the world, the milieu of the of the art world in Beverly Hills in the '90s that um, Jeff makes his way up in and and sort of is the, the sort of main story that he tells. I myself worked for a fine art and rare book appraiser in Beverly Hills in the 90s. So at a certain point, uh, Francis, um, who had been many other things in earlier drafts, became an art dealer. And um, that was one of those things that just felt right. And I was sort of off to the races and enjoying um, doing some some research but also just a lot of uh you know uh, blending of memory and imagination of what what went down in the in the late 90s in beverly hills in the art world what what effect did changing what he did have on the book i mean did you have did it sort of make you rearrange things it must have made you rearrange things so many scenes take place at the gallery and through the gallery and through art yeah well, the and in fact, the the version before he became an art dealer was the last version that was a first person um, Jeff narrative. Mm -hmm. So uh, the anonymous narrator and Francis being an art dealer both um, 
happened in that same iteration, which was the the one that got me across the finish line in terms of a, a full first draft. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I'd love to hear you read from mouth to mouth. Sure. All right. Do you have any um, any any place you'd like me to read from? You know, I always think it's good to start at the beginning, but if there's a section you particularly love to read, do that. All right. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll read from the first page. Okay. I sat at the gate at JFK, having red-eyed my way from Los Angeles, exhausted, minding my own business, reflecting on what I'd seen the night before, shortly after takeoff, shortly before sleep, something I'd never seen before from an airplane. I'd been on the left side of the plane, and we'd gone south over the ocean, accident of fate, affording me a panoramic view of the city at night, amber streetlights dotting neighborhoods, red stripe, white stripe garlands of freeway traffic, mysterious black gaps of waterways and parkland. Then a small burst of light, not at ground level, but above it. Another burst of light, streaks opening like a flower in time-lapse, a fireworks show. I watched the little explosions until we penetrated the cloud layer. It wasn't a holiday. I was thinking about how a site that might consume our attention completely on the ground could, from another perspective, barely register as a blip on an enormous field when I heard a name over the PA. Jeff Cook, the agent said, please check in at the counter for gate 11. A common enough name, but it piqued my attention. I had known a Jeff Cook once at UCLA almost 20 years earlier. Looking up, I saw a handsome man in his 40s striding toward the counter. He was dressed in a sharp blue suit, no tie, glasses with transparent lucite frames, expensive leather loafers. He said his name to the gate agent and slid his boarding pass and identification across the counter. While she clicked away at the noisy keyboard, he leaned slightly on the handle of his fancy hard-shelled rollerboard suitcase. this this beginning and and basically i mean i realize you went through different drafts and and then you you got to the nameless uh, narrator but once you did that mm-hmm. how how did it go in terms of writing the book did you barrel through and once you wrote a page you didn't look back or do you futz along the way or and and was this always then the first page the beginning of that yeah. finally realized draft Yes, it was always the first page. Um, the I, I found um, a few months after the book came out, I found an old file on my computer from, uh, you know, in my little archives, a text file called Airport Story. And it had in it um, just some notes for a story where someone sees fireworks from above and uh, someone's name is called over the PA that is, is from someone's past. And that was from 2001. So I, I had this, that little, what appears on the first page of this novel has apparently been um, making its way around uh, my head for a while. And so that's, that just felt right, felt um, like the right way to begin. It, in terms of drafts, yeah, I tend to futz. I think I probably rewrote the first chapter a couple of times. 
Um, and then I would say it was pretty much once I had all those pieces in place, it was a halting forward March, um, all the way through the book, uh, with, you know, a lot of sort of iterative, iterative revising, but it, my, my process tends to be to start at the beginning until I, I lose steam or hit a wall and then start over. Mm-hmm. So um, once I had all those pieces in place, this was the draft, you know, that I didn't have to start over. Um, but, you know, it still requires a fair amount of revision and messing around. And, and you start over because to, to get that, to get the momentum going again, or to remember what you had in mind and head that way or what? I think I start over because I, it, it's sort of like, um, I, I, whatever causes the, the novel to run out of steam um, always feels like it has its roots, you know, from, from the start in some misconception or some um, approach that isn't working. So I just, yeah, I just start over uh, from the beginning because I also feel like it's hard to go back and tell exactly where, um, where it went sideways. And in general, I, I, I feel like um, it's the more you know your own book while you're writing it, the sort of more creative power you have um, to make something that feels as though it's, it's coming out completely naturally. So I guess that's part of my process is to, to, to you know, keep going over it so that when it finally does come out in that final draft form, um, it does feel as though it was all at hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's not a very efficient process, I'll say that, or very fun. <laughs> what, well, what about the characters? I mean, do you do character biographies or do you get to know them as you write them? Uh, I get to know them as I write them, 100%. Um, I think, you know, sometimes if I have some, some historical things that need to come into the book, uh, you know, I'll scribble some notes on the side, but I don't do those I, I always wish that I could make these things work, you know, like people have these, here's a template for creating characters, you know, and you fill it out and you can always refer to it. Um, and I, I feel like I kind of um, get to know my characters in a more intuitive way. Uh, so I'm not sure that that kind of template would be that useful for me other than remembering, you know, what kind of hair, hair they have or something. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. how, how about how you feel about them? I mean, do you have to love them? Do you have to empathize with them? How do you need to feel about them as you write them? And I guess, I mean, that would apply for, you know, your other books as well. Um, yeah, it's, that's an interesting thing. Cause I think that what you're describing, like feeling about a character is, is something that I, I identify with from the reading experience very much, you know, um, all the feelings I've had for all these characters that I've read. But for the characters that I've written, it's more like, I don't have a term. Maybe like I could say, rather than feeling about them, I feel with them. Mm-hmm. So as I'm, as I'm working it out, um, yeah, I'm just kind of with them. So it's, there's not as much distance uh, 
so yeah, there's, there's humanity in, in all of them. Um, and then somebody like Jeff, who I think by the end of the book, um, can, can be judged rather harshly by a reader. Um, Jeff, you know, emerged and developed in the writing process, much as Jeff if emerges and develops uh, over the course of his biography, the course of his life. So he's, he, you know, unless he's a total sociopath, he's kind of an, you know, an open minded, lost, a bit of a doofus, you know, he's been broken up with at the, uh, at the moment that he, he does this rescue on the beach. He's already, he's heartbroken. He doesn't quite know what to do with his life. He's house sitting for someone who's house sitting and um, he's really dislocated. Uh, uh, he kind of stumbles into this life, uh, into this story. So I don't know. I feel like there's, I, I really identify with that doofus Jeff while I also can can sort of judge uh, his later choices. Although where, where he turns dark, I think is a very, very blurry zone. Hmm. Hmm. As in, yeah. as in life, as in life. Well, yeah. I, you know, I was going to ask you, cause you your family had a tragedy um, mm -hmm. some decades ago. I don't know if you want to talk about that, but I, I'm curious how that influenced, how that influences your writing how that influenced this book, if it did. Yeah, well, it very literally influenced my first book uh, because the idea for that book came about while I was driving um, across the country and sort of driving through some of the same cities where um, my older half-brother Eric was um, abducted and, and killed, essentially. Um, and so this question of the, the guy who did it was out on parole. And I thought, what if I sat down in a bar in mm -hmm. North Platte, you know, and mm -hmm. I'm dry, you know, I stop at a motel and I go to the motel bar or whatever. And I find myself sitting next to this guy. I know, you know, I know his name. Um, what, you know, what do you do with this kind of thing? Because, you know, personally, I'm fairly optimistic. I'm fairly pacifistic you know, in the abstract, I'm against the death penalty, you know, um, because I, I think, you know, the justice system makes a lot of mistakes. But on the other hand, this guy, you know, killed my brother, and it's pretty clear. So the sort of cockamamie scheme that's at the center of the interloper comes directly from, you know, having experienced that. Um, and the characters, the way the characters deal with um, uh, death, and mourning uh, comes from those experiences as well. Then, you know, Panorama City sort of exists in the opposite universe, and it's probably subconsciously mostly influenced by my having my son being at a co-op preschool, and I was spending a lot of time with highly intelligent, highly naive, illiterate um, people, uh, preschoolers. <laughs> um, who, you know, who influenced my, my narrator, I think, in some ways. Uh, in terms of how and, and in what way that influenced mouth to mouth, um, obviously, the answer is uh, it did somehow, but I, there's no clear line for me between that 
and um, and mouth to mouth. Yeah, I wonder if it's just that you know you you had mentioned you know Jeff turning dark or going you know mm -hmm. dark, and I wonder if sometimes like with writers, our past you know, our family of origin, things that have happened to us just kind of find their way in. I mean, we mm -hmm. don't intend them to be there or we're not going, I'm going to use this here, but we end up using it somewhere in some way. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely, there are always aspects of, uh, well, there are aspects of the family dynamic in this book that, you know, echo things in my family that I recognize, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you're there. There's a great Philip Roth line. Um, I can't. It's in one of the Zuckerman books, maybe the Anatomy Lesson, and he talks about the personal ingredient um, and how basically, if a novel you know doesn't have any, the personal ingredient, it's not going to be any good. Mm -hmm. But uh, you get too much of the personal ingredient, and you'll disappear right up your own. Um, I don't know if I can curse on your podcast, right up your own a-hole, we'll say. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's a, it's just a funny line, but it's also hundred percent true that you can't, you can't separate yourself from your, from your life story. And that stuff leaks into your books no matter what. And it is what make, what gives them some of their power that they, that they're, they come from life. But um, if you sit in your own, if you stew in your own juices too much, um, you might lose your your readers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that's a good one yeah I, i'm gonna have to remember that and find that actually because i love it um you know without giving away the ending i wanted to talk about the ending because the ending mm -hmm. reminded me of something that uh robert mcgee promotes you know robert mcgee who wrote story and dialogue mm -hmm. and you know and he said about endings that he thought the ironic ending was the best ending. And I found this ending so ironic. And I don't know mm -hmm. if you intended it that way when you were writing it or how you came to it. I mean, endings are so incredibly hard. I think they're the hardest part of the book for me, but I don't know if they are for you, but I wonder how you work the ending and, and you know, talk a little bit about coming up with your ending. Yeah. Um, endings are hard. I think the, the hardest part, the two hardest parts about the ending, uh, writing the ending of a book, I think the number one hardest thing is if, that you don't, unless you are one of those writers who writes toward an ending, you don't know what the ending is. So it's just full of uncertainty. Um, you know, am I going to get to an ending of some kind um, all the way through the, the drafting? And the other thing is, that if there's something wrong with the ending, it's usually not the ending itself. It's what's come before um, just to, that fails to set it up or fails to arrive there. Um, in this book, the ending um, came about, well, I'm trying to figure out how to say it without quote unquote spoiling too much of it. I, I was drawn to a, some kind of, symmetry in the end, I guess. And, um, but the final chapter was not in, in, intended to be sort of the uh, 
initially the, the ending of the book. So as I was coming toward the ending of the book, I had a vision of what the end of the book was. And essentially it was the book minus the final chapter. And so I got to that quote unquote ending before the final chapter. And I don't know what it was. It was, it was, it just occurred to me that I could do try something. And I just sat down and wrote the final chapter pretty much as is. Uh, and then, and then, you know, like literally pushed my chair back and looked at it and I said, can I do this? Can I, <laughs> can I really do this? And like, you know, it, cause it's, it's a bit of a bold move that I think in some ways could be dismissed as just a trick, right? A mm-hmm. little, a, a little Philip uh, at the end. And part of my, can I do this was that I hadn't really uh, read a book that had done it like that. Um, at least in recent memory. And I don't know, I like, you know, I liked it, but then I had to make sure that it was earned so that it did involve keeping that ending and keeping it the way it was, the way it is, uh, did involve a fair amount of going back, uh, in, in editing that draft to make sure that it would be earned in some way and not just feel like, uh, you know, flipping over the the game table Mm -hmm. so when you know that you have to go back and and fill some things in or or rework Mm -hmm. do you do it at that moment or do you make notes and wait till you start over for you know the nth revision uh yeah i i usually i mean it depends on my actual real life schedule um you know if i need to go pick someone up from school (laughs) or something like that uh Typically, I'm I'm in there up to my elbows anyway. So yeah, if I have the time, I'm just going in back and messing with it right then and there. Uh, as I get t- toward the end of the process, I'll tend to make like a punch list um, of things that need to get done, or I need to do a certain pass through the book looking for something. Um, and then, you know, like a language punch list too, like looking for too many uses of the word perhaps or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I tend to, I, there's not that much of a formal division between um, the revisions as I get closer and closer to the, the draft that my agent sees and then eventually my editor sees. Mm. You know, before we go, uh, we have a few minutes left. I wanted to mm-hmm. ask you about the length because it seems that novel lengths are, oh, I don't know, controversial, but it, it seems that everywhere I look, people are saying, if you're writing a literary novel, it has to be between like 80 and 100,000 words. If you're writing a thriller, it has to be this. If you're writing mm-hmm. a fantasy, it has to be this. I mean, what do you think? What do you think about length? Because yours is, what, about 50,000, I think you said? Yeah, it's one Gatsby. That's what I call it, um, <laughs> you know, because you got to remind people that that books come in all different lengths, and yeah. and great books uh, have in the past. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I don't really, I I do, I, I do remember feeling like if it wasn't seventy thousand words, it wasn't a novel. You know, back in the day, back when I wrote The Interloper, you know, and that felt like you know it's got to be two hundred something pages at least to be a novel, and. Um, I recognize this one is shorter, 
obviously, but I, I felt like I had done everything that I set out to do in the, in the space that I'd used um, somewhat economically. As I mentioned, a previous draft that never even got to the ending that didn't even have a, a Francis as an art dealer, you know, went 76,000 words. So <laughs> <laughs> there, there, each, each word in this book represents, you know, 1.25 words elsewhere. Uh, I guess the answer is that I, I thought it should be as long as, you know, it just seemed like the right length for this story and the way that it was told. And then uh, the, the marketplace type decisions, I, I figured my agent would um, talk to me about or my editor. Uh, you know, I, I, my editor could have said, this is great, but if we want to sell it as a novel, you need to add 20,000 words or something. Um, <laughs> But she didn't. Nobody really sort of brought it up. Uh, in fact, I was surprised to see that it came in under 200 because they did put quite a few words on each page. They didn't try to like white space this thing into mm -hmm. a, a fatter book. But there are all kinds of book production reasons for that. And uh, I'm just happy that, um, yeah, that it got to it got to come out into the world in this form, and and people seem to enjoy um, devouring it. Yeah, yeah, it, it moves along at a clip. I love yeah. that. I love that. I love the cover too. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah, are you happy with the cover? I'm super happy with the cover. It was a. Uh, uh, it took a little while to get to, to get there. Um, there were some other covers that I wasn't so keen on, and this one. I only heard the story about it later, but apparently, the image that's on the cover was an early. Um, uh, concept, but the entire image had been in a frame and small at the center of a previous cover design. So this was meant to be a, a, a work of art at the center of a cover and it didn't quite work in that way. And they sent it to me. Um, first time I saw it was sent, sent to me like this with the, with the silhouette and the glasses and the volcanic clouds. Um, mm -hmm, and I just mm -hmm. was, fell in love with it instantly. Yeah. Yeah, it's because it's a, it's a it's a weird it's slightly weird as a cover and it's a slightly weird book. So I thought, hey, yeah, yeah. Well, it makes you you know definitely makes you wonder, right? It's mm -hmm. like, what is this? What are they clouds? Is it what is that? Oh, a volcano. Okay, why why a volcano? So right. you know, I I love uh, covers that make you kind of think about things, um, and of course we can't go without saying that. Um, that mouth to mouth um, is on Obama's reading list for the summer, mm. and mm -hmm. I wonder how that affected how did how did that affect you? How did that affect sales? I mean, do you know what effect this has had? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting because it's it, one of those things I think best you know digested in retrospect because while it's happening, it's kind of um, I don't know. It's like I'm aware that this really amazing thing has happened. I'm excited that uh, that Obama read my book, um, that people who, you know, respect his taste might, you know, my book might find its way into many more hands, which is really exciting. But on the other hand, it's also super abstract, right? It's not like I'm standing in front of a crowd of people, you know, being handed a certificate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I think you know, anytime anything good happens with the book in the world, I, I describe it as alienated gratification, you know, because <laughs> it's like I'm super happy in the abstract um, right, right. about what's going on with this with this book. And 
you know, once they're once a book is done, it's like it's like sending a kid off to college or something, right? Like it, it, it's still yours and you made it, um, so to speak, but it has to go do its own thing. And um, so, I, you know, I very much feel like I used to be the person who wrote this book. And so, like, I'm really rooting for it. And uh, uh, so that, it was exciting. It was exciting to get the the, te- the early morning texts, you know, wake up. Uh, <laughs> and And no... You know, there was no heads up, no, no publisher heads up, no agent, no public, you know, no publicity. It's it's not one of those inside book world things. Um, somehow, some way, the book ended up in his hands. Nobody knows how, and um, and it ended up on his list, which obviously it delights me. Yeah, how? Yeah, that's great. That's great, yeah. and it's a great kind of surprise too. I mean, I think surprises are best when they really are surprises. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. So I wonder if, in closing, if you have any advice for the writers, the novelists, um, who, or I suppose any writer in any genre, who's listening. Mm. This is when you edit out the dead air. (laughs) (laughs) Or I can just Uh, say, as you're thinking, that we've been talking with Anton Wilson and his book is Mouth to Mouth, published by Avid Reader Press, which is a division of Simon & Schuster. There. Okay. Well, then I will say, (laughs) here's a piece of advice. While you're you're working, um, you know, everything that you do when you're putting it down on the page is a decision an artistic decision. Every word is. And usually, you know, a lot of them happen subconsciously, which is nice because otherwise we wouldn't be able to write a, you know, a single sentence. In making those decisions, follow the energy. If you find yourself feeling heavy, dragged down, bummed out by your book and what you're working on and what you want, you think you want it to be, something like that, and you get a glimmer of energy in a different direction, follow the energy Mm. that sort of inner enthusiasm is um it's gold and that's that's where you should be going how's that for advice yeah yeah no that's great i can i can apply that to what i'm working on so me too perfect (laughs) speaking to myself as well yeah Mm, anton thank you thank you so much for taking the time oh thank you barbara it's uh been a delight That was Antoine Wilson, author of Mouth to Mouth. This episode was produced on August 19th, 2022. Music and sound editing by Travis Barrett. If you want to know more about the show or you'd like to reach out to my co-host Marie Stone or me, email me at penonfire at earthling.net. Thank you for listening to Writers on Writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. See you next time. (music) 